You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Welcome to Business Matters with me, your host, Anameen Templeton. And boy, it may be freezing cold in South Africa today, but it seems like we've just had good news, good news, good news um, everywhere. It's popping up all over the place. So suddenly, everyone is starting to say, look, the second half for South Africa is starting to look really good. I mean, uh, not only are they starting to say that Besetia Khanyago and his Monetary Policy Committee um, meeting this month could see us uh, getting a 0.25 percent point uh, reduction in our RIBA rate. The RIBA rate could drop from 6.75 to 6.5. Market analysts, uh, in as much as they can believe, can be believed, uh, say that uh, South Africa always, always enjoys good times uh, when interest rates are falling and. Uh, well, and that's not the only reason why uh, they, they say that we're going to have a better second half. Um, we've got bank transactions. Mike Schussler, uh, the accountant that... Uh, uh, not the accountant, the economist. <laughs> uh, he who, do, who gives us analysis on uh, bank transaction reports, uh, you know, withdrawals and deposits, uh, gives a good idea, an indication of what kind of salaries and wages uh, people are earning, how much money they're taking in and out of banks. He says uh, that there's uh, strong indications that South Africa is going to be enjoying a better second half. Trade figures come out today uh, also pointing to a better second half. The South African Commerce and Industry Department, uh, not department, uh, South African... South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, SACI, uh, says they're also expecting a better second half. Uh, doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet uh, because, well, there's, uh, there's a lot of things holding us back, aren't there? Um, Titum Baweni uh, appearing in court today, uh, um, urgent papers trying to in- interdict the uh, public prosecutor from, no, the public protector from uh, taking remedial action against him. Very interesting uh, news there. Apparently, Sulram Oposa doesn't intend opposing it, uh, which would have the effect of giving it an almost an, uh, the, the court finding in favor of Tito. Although I suppose Ultim Kwebani is also going to be answering that affidavit. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, that ca- case due for discussion uh, argument on the 23rd of this month. So that's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, you've got the finance minister coming out against the public protector, claiming the public protector has been biased against him and he's basically fighting a rearguard action on behalf of Jacob Zuma. Jacob Zuma due to appear before the uh, Zondo Commission uh, next week, Monday to Friday. The whole week has been set down uh, for, t- for Jacob Zuma's uh, moment of glory. Uh, and uh, his supporters are saying they're going to be coming out uh, in full force to support him. So I don't know what's going to be more interesting, what's going on inside or outside uh, the commission's hearings. Um, uh, the dollar's on the back foot as the U.S. pushes for more uh, more easing. Uh, the uh, U.S. Fed has come out with a very, as it's been called, a dovish report indicating uh, that, uh, well, there may well be three um, interest rate cuts as the market has predicted uh, this year. A uh, strong jobs report came out last week on Friday. 244,000 jobs uh, added in the last month, indicating that the U.S. economy is uh, really benefiting from a quantitative easing around about $8 trillion worth of money thrown at uh, thrown into the economy, thrown into the stock exchange of U.S. bonds. Imagine if we had uh, $8 trillion uh, thrown at our economy, how, how well we would be doing if the world was willing to accept our currency uh, after that as, as a real and genuine currency. This kind of thing is, is something that can only be ca- carried off by the United States and Europe, mainly because uh, they've got their hands on the reins of their international Financial uh, controls, I suppose you could say. Uh, mining is complaining that they're struggling with really high ESCOM prices. Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of a while back, uh, the Chamber of, of Mines came out here in South Africa 
and said that uh, we need to start controlling coal sales out of South Africa because we need to ensure that ESCOM has enough coal available. And, uh, you know, you can't export coal out of South Africa while the country still needs the coal that it's producing. Uh, so uh, I thought that was really, rather interesting, you know. Um, uh, you you don't get uh, a sector in South Africa that's more capitalist oriented uh, than the than the mining sector, but then the mining sector calling for kind of like socialist uh, communist interventions and uh, getting the government to intervene and prevent um, the free market from dictating where where uh, coal should be sold. So anyway, <laughs> the mining industry calling for the government to control its own its own outputs. It's uh, very interesting, you know, that kind of call. But I, I, I said at the time, I think it was around about 2015 when they made that call. Uh, I said at the time, well, well, you know, maybe we should also you should just. Uh, uh, jump over in one fell swoop and say, listen, you know what, it's not just an issue of coal, but of all minerals going out of the country need to be managed in, managed in the national interest. And so, in actual fact, all mineral sales should be controlled by the government through the Reserve Bank. And if you really want to change the, the mandate of the Reserve Bank, that would be one way of doing it. Man- ma- managing... Uh, commodity sales out of South Africa according to the interests of the economy in the interests of the RAND, in the interests of job creation, in the interests of ESCOM providing us with enough electricity. But it's funny though, you know, I've, I've got a feeling the Chamber of Mind isn't going to be very keen on that kind of idea. But, but, but really, the Chamber of Minds itself was arguing for that kind of idea back in 2015. So, uh, yeah, um, ArcelorMittal uh, came out today saying they expect to cut uh, 2,000 jobs going forward, uh, tight times uh, in uh, the, the, the steel sector, steel prices falling today. Um, some news of the strategic fuel fund sales back in the spotlight. Um, uh, and uh, Tina Dumat-Peterson, um, when she was in charge, they claimed that they didn't sell the, the oil. They merely uh, redirected it in, in, into other sectors. And then uh, her successor came out uh, about two years later and admitted, yeah, I know in actual fact they had uh, sold uh, the strategic fuel fund. And, and, and they sold it for $27 a barrel. And uh, at that time, uh, the oil price was at uh, $38 a barrel. Mm, boy, 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 boy. Talk about, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, selling the national silverware. Uh, minimum wage is apparently not hurting employers or employment. And apparently there's only like about a 7% of employers in South Africa are paying their their workers less than the 3,700 uh minimum wage level where it has been set. And South Africa is facing a 416 billion rand road maintenance bill. Uh, This is uh, due to a backlog uh, in maintenance on the roads. And in many ways it also uh, underlines uh, the difficulty uh, facing maturing economies. South Africa is like this two-leg economy. We've got uh, an, an emerging market economy and a mature market economy here in South Africa. And uh, you know we we we've got many of the features of all of the all of the stagnating economies around the world, like the United States and the European Union. They've reached in in many ways the the ultimate extent of the their potential to growth, uh, and have now turned to cannibalizing uh, their demographics. Uh, ever since the 1960s, the United States and Europe has been on a on a population uh, dwindling path. Uh, fewer and fewer young people being born, more and more old people heading into retirement, putting a strain on pension funds, on medical aids, on insurance. <clears throat> no longer, now no, no the workers are supposed to, the remaining workers are supposed to um, subsidize uh, the pension funds of, of the older generations. As, a, as had been the case before the 1960s and the invention of the pool came along, uh, and people had always had big families and now they don't have big families now they have small families and uh, this is like adding uh, to all of the other all, all of the other pressures that are put onto the economy like for instance you build a huge big road network and America only really started building its highway and freeway network uh, after the 1940s and 1950s 
uh, much like South Africa, the technology really started rolling out, you know, the invention of the spaghetti highways, the spaghetti junctions, as they call them, and so on, the huge big freeways and so on. They really started taking off in the 1940s and 1950s. That's when uh, cars really started taking off in economies around the world, automobile manufacturers going around to cities everywhere around the world, persuading them, paying them bribes. To get rid of their trams. Uh, trams is probably the cheapest form. Uh, you've got a new kind of version of it now, the bullet trains. Also also using a very similar kind of um, uh, technology. Uh, so, so trams were removed from all the major cities around the world. Here yeah, in Johannesburg, in parts of uh, the CBD and in Hilbra, you can still see the old tram tracks uh, embedded in the roads. Um, and uh, that meant that uh, that introduced a whole new era of everyone's got his own car, everyone's driving on the roads, clogging up the roads. You have to ask yourself today, who are the real road dogs on the road? Are they the minibus taxis or are they uh, the one-car drivers? You know, the, the, the cars with one driver, the one-driver cars, rather. You know, minibus has got 16 to uh, 22, 25 people in them. And they, they try to get through the traffic, taking people to work. And uh, one, one driver cars are, are getting in the way. They're clogging up the roads. Uh, when you're heading into to work in the mornings and that commuter rush hour is there, it's 9 o'clock and uh, you're only coming up to Crown Mines as you're entering Johannesburg and you're supposed to be at work at 9 and you've still got another, you can see it, you've got another 20 minutes ahead of you. How many of the cars ahead of you are one-driver cars? Well, you, you know, you can argue, well, South, South Africa uh, doesn't have a, a proper public transport system. But remember, we got rid of that public transport system in the 1960s and the 1970s. Yeah, and so we, now we find ourselves uh, with a huge, big uh, road maintenance backlog. But our road maintenance backlog is nothing like the United States is facing. They've got something like a trillion and a half Road maintenance backlog. In fact, uh, Donald Trump made it one of his um, uh, made it one of the things, uh, the one of his uh, election campaign promises that he was going to fix the roads and he was going to get a fund together to fix the roads and so on. That hasn't gone anywhere. They've got to spend too much money killing Muslims around the world. They're too busy killing Muslims and Africans around the world. Uh, they they don't have time to pay for the the backlogging infrastructure. Well, you know, South Africa also suffering from uh, those problems. And uh, inshallah, if we have enough time in the show, we'll be getting on to that. As well as, uh, well, it uh, seems that corporate South Africa is uh, really tired of Sir Ramaphosa's promises. They're saying it's time he started delivering. It's nice enough to start talking about the fourth industrial revolution, about bullet trains and all of that kind of thing. But in the meantime, please, we'd like you to keep the lights on. You know, it's a good idea to give us bullet trains and all of that kind of thing. It's a nice idea. But please, you know, uh, when we get in uh, to home at night, um, the lights aren't working. Here in Lanasia, although ESCOM isn't uh, engaging in any load shedding at the moment, once again, yeah, the, the shack settlements on the other side of the railway line <clears throat> have sorted out all of the electricity. Uh, so uh, no one is enjoying electricity uh, right now here at Marcus Sahaba. Well, we've got our um, generators going. Uh, unfortunately, many other people down the road from us uh, are in complete darkness. And this has been going on now for like three, four months. And it looks as though it's here for the duration. Um, I, was, I was going home the other night. <clears throat> And now I saw some brothers gather around a little substation. So I stopped to have a, have a, have a chat with them. Zaneid uh, uh, from our, uh, our community here, he came and stopped and we had a chat. And he said, no, they've been, you know, the lights have been tripping all evening long. And they keep on coming along to the substation and flicking the switch. And after a while they decided, well, okay, we're going to call uh, Jobic Power. It's called Jobic Power and Jobic Power comes along do exactly the same thing. They switch the switch and they go away again. So the guys decided, well, okay, well, that's the last time we're going to call Jobic Power because we can flick the switch ourselves. We actually don't need to wait for them to come. We'll wait half an hour for them to arrive, flick the switch and go away again. We can just flick the switch ourselves. All of it, of course, is illegal and this is not the way it's supposed to be working. But Zanade says that, well, you know, uh, for Johannesburg, all of these little substations are now controlled uh, with, uh, with cards. You can only access the substation uh, legally. Uh, you have to call a control room, uh, 
Joburg City Power will say, okay, we will, uh, we will uh, unlock that substation for you remotely using a special card. And there's only one card for the whole of the city. So any time in the city, any substation that's been um, fixed, they've got to, got to call Johannesburg. Johannesburg got to check all the things and the guy with the card. Hopefully he's not in the toilet. He hasn't gone to lunch. He isn't in a meeting. Um, <clears throat> that's how it's been managed in Johannesburg at the moment. So as a result, uh, people power, community power comes to the fore, and people start taking the law into their own hands. Um, you know, that could be a double-edged sword uh, going forward, um, indicating a breakdown of law and order, uh, indicating a breakdown of, um, of the system. And it, it is all really worrying, because the people who are supposed to be managing the system are the ones who are cannibalizing it. Well, anyway, okay, let's go across to the Janesburg Stock Exchange and see how things are. The tail of the tape for the South African economy, well, actually not. It's more like for the Santon economy, I suppose, for the, um, the, the, um, the Belito Bay economy and so on. Uh, the Janesburg Stock Exchange turning around that raft uh, yesterday. Um, as uh, emerging markets came to the fore again today. Uh, what with the dovish uh, statement from the U.S. Fed? People saying, okay, so there are going to be three interest rate cuts this year, so we don't have to keep all of our money in U.S. Treasuries. We can take our money out of U.S. Treasuries and put it into more risk uh, um, investments, such as emerging markets. So uh, yesterday we lost over 1% on the JSE, and today we gained over 1% on the JSE. Um, uh, the top 40 index on 51,491, gaining 1.15. The all-share index, 57,597.87, gaining 1.11%. The rand has gained 1.25% against the dollar. It's on 14 to the dollar at the moment, on the nose. 17.52 against the pound, and uh, 15.77 against the euro. Gold also comes storming back again. Uh, $1,412 an ounce. Mm. Uh, that's as, um, you know, as the U.S. Fed comes out and says, well, you know, we're going to cut interest rates this year. And everyone says, yay. Donald Trump comes out and says, uh, in actual fact, what we want is a global coalition of the willing to send their Navy boats uh, into the Strait of Hormuz. We need them to patrol the waters. Uh, but America doesn't want to pay this on its own. We need an international task force. Well, well, you see, U.S. unilateralism is now being pulled back to the drawing board by the sheer weight of dirty money. The United States doesn't want to build its own wall on the Mexican border. The Mexicans tell them, get lost. We're not going to pay for your wall. And Donald Trump like has to declare a national state of emergency in order to try and find the funds. Still don't know if he actually has found the funds for that wall. Uh, but it seems that, you know, he can declare as many states of emergency and global states of emergency as he likes. I don't see the world stepping up and saying, yeah, we want to bear the costs of uh, managing uh, the United States' desire to go to war with Iran, which is essentially what's happening there. So, um, yeah, the international coalition of the willing is likely to be made up of a few Saudi speedboats. Um, uh, the United States is going to send free Coca-Cola, and uh, that's likely to be uh, the full extent of Donald Trump's coalition of the naval willing in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, uh, the most uh, watched shares on the JSE, usually a bit of a rogues gallery. Sabanya moving up from uh, number two to number one spot. Steinhoff uh, being uh, dislodged into two second spot today. Uh, Sassel is in third and uh, Libstar is in fourth place there on the most watched shares. Biggest losers, uh, or rather biggest winners on the JSE today. Uh, still got two uh, gold producers there. A strong, a strong showing by the commodity, the mining sector in the big, the big major moves upwards lately. Although they do also frequently fall into the biggest losers division. Uh, but that, uh, that shows that there's activity in the mining sector and that's looking good for South Africa. Uh, Goldfields in number one spot, 5.06% gain. Roynet second place, 4.34. Harmony in third, 3.77. Life HC Clinics, uh, 3.74. That's healthcare. Aspen, uh, pharma, pharmaceutical company, got a very big uh, debt problems. So also gaining 3.5% today. RCL Rainbow Chicken, a big loser, down 3.76. South 32, that's gold mining, down 2.71. Intuprop, down 2.70. Hammerson, down 2.11. And Diskem, 
Oh, so funny. You've got Discam, uh, the discount pharmacy, uh, pharmacies, a uh, big loser and, uh, is the fifth biggest loser. And Aspen is the fifth biggest winner, pharmaceutical, pharmacological maker, pharmaceutical manufacturer of, uh, of, um, what do you call it? Non-branded products. Right, okay, so let's move into the general news then for today. What's been happening? Tito has unveiled a new PIC board. <clears throat> That's as Dan Magila is sitting there um, uh, giving his testimony before the PIC Commission of Inquiry. And I must say, having looked at his two days of testimony, uh, I, I feel vindicated in my feeling about him in all the years when he was at the helm of the PIC. Dan Magila, now there, you see, there is someone at the helm. Someone who is competent and someone who is doing his job, which was why I was suddenly surprised um, towards the end of last year and this year when suddenly Dan Magilla, all these stories coming out about bad Dan Magilla and so on. Um, Business Day has been very active in that too, I must say, regarding the IO transactions. Uh, Yesterday, Magilla spoke about the IO transaction and said, in actual fact, you know what? We made a lot of really good money out of this deal. And I still stand by it and say it was a very good deal. The PIC made a profit of 3 billion rand out of investing in, in IO. And uh, so for all of the words that Business Days had to say about the IO deal and uh, Iqbal Serv, um, irrespective of whatever kind of uh, cozy deal it got in terms of buying uh, independent newspapers, that IO deal seems as though it's watertight and Dan Majila is standing by it. Um, and uh, he, he says that in actual fact uh, the real problem started uh, in 2017 when he didn't want to back uh, PIC investing in EDCON. He said, everywhere you look at EDCON, EDCON is a bad investment. However, you see, there are more than 140,000 jobs that are on the line. And uh, for this reason, uh, Sakau, the South Commercial Catering and Allied Workers Union, is threatening fire and brimstone. Food and Allied Workers Union also threatening fire and brimstone if the PIC does not agree to buy shares or, in fact, basically to take over Edcon, Edgar's, yeah, Edgar's, the fashion retailer. The fashion retailer that specializes in retailing foreign brands. Mm. Well, you know, um, uh, according to Dan Machila, it is a bad deal. Any way you look at it, it's going to lose money and it's, it's, it's a stinker. It's a stinker. It's very sad. There's 140,000 jobs on the line. But, uh, you know, in order for the PIC to get involved, there would have to be all kinds of major restructuring and so on. And uh, when you've got, uh, you know, the, 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 when you've got ministers involved, when you've got trade unions involved, when the trade unions and the ministers are trying to force the, the administrator of state pensions to step in and use state pensions to bail out a capitalist structure. You just know this is uh, going to get no. This uh, this thing is going to go nowhere unless they're able to put in place a board that is only going to be answerable to itself and is going to be independent and will not have like you know the telephone ringing every five minutes. This is uh, this is uh, the trade union saying you can't do this thing, you can't do this thing, you can't do this thing. But we have to do this thing. We have to get rid of, like, say, this supplier. We have to get rid of this distributor. We have to combine these two together, combining their staffs and halving the, the, the staff complement. Oh, well, um, it, 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 and, and, and apparently uh, this was also one of the reasons why Ramaphosa was brought uh, into power last year at, uh, at, the, at the ANC um, uh, biannual meeting uh, where he he was reaffirmed as leader of the ANC uh, was because uh, that was how he got Casata to come on board. Uh, so uh, yeah, we now have a, a weakened state president who is dependent on all kinds of uh, various sectors for support. Um, while uh, factions within his own party are are trying to dislodge him. Mm. And uh, well, the the the, um, the chief executives of the big companies in South Africa say, well, they're not happy. They're not happy with Ramaphoria anymore. They're not feeling it. They're not getting the feeling. But anyway, today Tito Mbweni moves in, has announced an interim board of directors at the Public Investment Corporation. I'm worried that this includes a former APSA boss Maria Ramos. The main reason I'm worried about that is because she's married to Trevor Manuel. 
Mr. Mr. Rothschilds in South Africa. Rothschilds is getting access to too many advisory roles on uh, parastatals here in South Africa. Uh, Trevor Manuel is using his influence too much. And uh, the uh, the Rothschilds influence in South Africa, the, the Goldman Sachs um, influence in South Africa is getting too strong. I mean, if Goldman Sachs is able to stand up in South Africa and say, Ugh, don't worry about the ANC. The ANC talks left but walks right. That means, you know, like the ANC in terms of the ANC is no longer the ANC. And now we have uh, Maria Ramos suddenly popping up after suddenly leaving APSA so quickly. Uh, she's now popping up as, uh, you know, she's got, her, she's got her wallpaper jackets on. You know, that's like fully, that's, that, 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 that's British mainstream. The British mainstream, you know, is like, um, it's, it's, a, it's a rather an odious one. They've got, got very untidy, dirty hair. And uh, as, as for dress sense, they've got a really awful dress sense. They've got this tendency to go for, for blazers and, uh, I don't know, it, it, it looks like clothing from the 1960s poor shop. Uh, but that is like that's uh, that's the upper class in Britain, you know. They've got those those funny hats with the like, sort of flower arrangements on them, and they've got the, those high heeled shoes and they're just below the knee uh, dresses, and you know the, the the pearl necklaces. Oh man, you know they they they, they, they look like uh, everybody's granny when they come out for the parades, and uh, and and that's what Maria Ramos looks like nowadays. Um, you know, she's got that uh, like British upper class uh, kind of look uh, written all over her. And um, so just because uh, she's married uh, to Trevor Manuel and uh, reading about Trevor Manuel's uh, interactions with Peter Moyo leading to Peter Moyo's resignation. Um, well, you know, I, I certainly don't like this Mr. Manuel guy. He was the guy that uh, set up the infrastructure that allowed a single state uh, single stock futures in South Africa, which ensured that we could act as that necessary um, pressure valve for the American economy as they moved into quantitative easing. So their, their interest rates fell. And because there's so much easy money everywhere, um, that means that people who live off, off RIBA uh, were unable to find uh, appropriate investment channels in the United States. And so they had to internationalize the United States uh, RIBA obligations. And so here in South Africa, we pick up the slack. We have unnaturally unhealthy high interest rates here in South Africa um, because we, uh, we calculate inflation incorrectly uh, in terms of, you see, if you, if, you, if you want to target inflation with interest rates, you can only target that part of price increases that are susceptible to interest rates. You see, oil is not susceptible to interest rates because the price of oil is set on international markets. So we have an, an, an inflation rate that is calculated too high, um, resulting in uh, us raising inflation and interest rates inappropriately in an upward trajectory. You see, uh, the, the, this whole scheme was put together by Trevor Manuel. Uh, he ensured that the JSE changed uh, changed its uh, its operations to include uh, such instruments like single stock futures. A single stock future is basically uh, it's uh, you have can buy a single stock future in almost any any uh, counter on the JSE today, whether it's Anglo American, whether it's Edgar's, whether it's uh, UIC or anything. Um, and uh, when you buy a single stock future uh, using um, a company trading on the JSE, uh, you buy into that company's share, but uh, you forego the dividend, and instead uh, you, you invest in the interest rate. So you hold it for a certain while, and then you sell it, and uh, you get the interest rate differential. So, so, so that's how it's working. Americans in in America can come and invest in their high interest rate um, investment um, um, investments uh, in South Africa, and we maintain a high interest rate here because America is not maintaining the high, their high interest rate, and so um, African consumers 
have to bear the burden that American consumers are supposed to be bearing. Well, it's not just us. There's also a whole lot of other similar currencies around the world. Um, uh, the Australian dollar is another. But it's, the Australian dollar is being managed in a much better way than the South African rand is being managed. Um, uh, simply because uh, I would say it's not because of our government's misbehavior. It's because uh, white perceptions are used and are magnified by uh, media such as Business Day, Reuters and Bloomberg. White perceptions are used and magnified by these outlets. And so basically South Africa's economy is held hostage to white perception. Well, anyway, uh, we're going to have to go for a quick commercial break. A uh, bit of news from the marketplace. Inshallah, we'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. If you want to call in and share your views with me, our telephone number here in Linnais is 010 0011 004. 010 0011 if you want to call us and share your views, tell us something that you think uh, we should be discussing on air. If you disagree with me, if you think that maybe there's something I've missed, give us a call. Very happy to uh, put you on air and share your views. So anyway, uh, at the Reserve Bank, Sul um, Ramaphosa has reappointed Lesetia Chaniago as the governor of the Reserve Bank. It's going to serve for another five years. Uh, his current term ends on November 8. Fundi Chazibane and Rashad Kasim have been appointed as deputies. Chazibane is currently advisor to the governors of the, of the bank. She was appointed advisor in 2018, uh, although it only became effective this year, making her the seventh member of the Monetary Policy Committee. She was working at the International Monetary Fund, the National Treasury, and the National Energy Regulator uh, before this. She holds a master's degree in economics. Um, Rashad Kasim, currently head of economic research and stats at the bank, holds a PhD in economics. Before joining the bank, he was uh, deputy DG of economic statistics at Stats South Africa and professor and head of School of Economics and Business Sciences at the University of its. So he's quite a bright one. He is indeed. He also held various positions at UCT, including as director of the Trade Policy Monitoring Secretariat. So uh, he's, uh, been, he's an outspoken critic of a nationalization of the Reserve Bank. Mbawene he said of the appointments, he congratulates appointees and looks forward to working with them. He needs uh, not to remind them of the tough economic and fiscal circumstances facing South Africa. They have my full support and confidence, he says. All right, well then, that's fine. Okay, okay. a better second uh, quarter can be expected when South Africa's gross domestic product figures are released in a few weeks' time, according to Mike Schussler. Uh, looking at the Bank Serve Africa Economic Transactions Index released today, showed an improved level of economic activity uh, over the first quarter. However, the volume of transactions fell on a year-to-year basis. Uh, this uh, apparently reflects a persistent weakening economy. Uh, the Betty uh, increased on an, um, on both an annual 2.1% and a quarterly 1.4% basis. Um, that's the Bank uh, Economic Transactions Index. Uh, economic transactions during this quarter indicate a massive bounce back for the economy after the disastrous first three months of the year, according to Schussler. In his view, the recent rise confirms that ESCOM's load shedding harmed economic growth and uh, the substantial improvement in, le- in electricity supply since then has allowed the economy to catch up. Uh, still, the, the minor slowdown in economic activity in June 2019, he says, indicates that the downward phase of the business cycle is not over yet and the economy is still not on a major growth path. Looking at the length of the economic downturn phase, South Africa has now underperformed for, four and a half, for five and a half years, which is leaving some more structural impacts, he reckons. While the need for intra- infrastructure spend is clearly evident, it is now less likely to happen as the slow economy leaves less money for infrastructure investment from reduced taxes collected. Smaller profits are also leading to corporates unable to set aside enough funds for improvements in their infrastructure. However, so, okay, so that's good news um, for the second quarter and indicating hopefully it's going to continue into the second half. Trade conditions in South Africa remain under pressure. 
uh, in June, according to the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Its trade activity index and its trade expectations indices were released today. It says that all components of trade are expected to improve over the next six months. Except for sales volumes that will remain subdued, but still in positive territory at 51. Input and sales prices are expected to decrease further. Uh, well, you know, sales prices, uh, input and sales prices. Uh, well, you know, input prices going down, resulting in a decline in sales prices is nice. But as long as the sales prices aren't uh, forced uh, declines, you know, um, manufacturers or retailers are rather taking the knock rather than passing it on to the consumer. So hopefully those low sales prices will be not an indication of low profitability. All components at present trade of present trade activity come under slightly more pressure in came under slightly more pressure in June compared to May. However, input and sales prices eased in June. Um, the trade activity index, that's uh, stuff going on now, uh, dipped by three index points uh, to 38 in June, while the trade expectations index, that's like expectation of trade going into the future, remained on the improved level of 48 recorded in May. For the chamber, this means respondents of the survey upheld the improved expectations of May. Um, some respondents indicated they're considering closing down their businesses due to the difficult conditions. Reasons cited included poor municipal service delivery, a strain on discretionary household spending, and increases in electricity, fuel, water, and other costs. Other sectors cited uh, difficulty in recruiting appropriately trained staff. The employment sub-index contracted somewhat in June 2019 to 42 index points, while expected employment conditions in the sector improved as the index increased from 41 to 45. That's quite a that's quite a healthy increase, I must say, on a monthly basis. And uh, yeah, the round up nearly one percent today, thanks uh, to a surprisingly dovish uh, Fed. Uh, according to Treasury partner at Peregrine Treasury Solutions, Bianca Buertis, uh, Fed uh, Reserve Chairman uh, Jeremy Powell's uh, testimony to Congress is surprisingly more dovish than markets were expecting, given the jobs data that came out uh, last week on Friday, 244,000 extra jobs in America. Um, we think the local unit, the rand, is now likely to retest the fourteen dollar, fourteen rand to dollar mark as the dollar comes under renewed pressure. Yeah, um, it does also indicate, you know, what this kind of like sustained uh, downward kind of pressure we've seen is is the Europe and America now preparing to devalue their currencies in order to try and uh, boost their export profits. Um, the United States for many years has been accusing China of undervaluing its currency. The, the stagnating economies do like uh, a, strong, a strong currency, very clearly. No, no, they have pursued a strong currency. It means you can buy up things cheap in other countries. Um, and your, your imports are also, also much cheaper, you know. Um, you can weaken your currency and suddenly uh, your exports are more profitable, but then your imports become more expensive. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And uh, many people have, have argued against trying to uh, manipulate currency valuations in order to promote economic activity. Because it doesn't really promote economic activity. It does momentarily promote uh, economic uh, profitability. Uh, but then the swings and roundabouts uh, coming to work again and everything equalizes out again and then everyone is just sitting with a weak currency. You see, importers suddenly have to start uh, paying more and manufacturers uh, who now you know need um, imported goods in order to make part of their manufacturing process like metals and so on, electricity even, especially if you're importing oil, uh, all of these costs suddenly go up and that means you have to pass on your costs uh, to your consumers and that means then that your exports uh, lose, their, um, lose their competitive edge. So, uh, yeah, um, is the United States, Europe and the UK embarking on uh, currency weakening? Uh, round are there um, 
obsequious currency traders and, uh, of course, uh, the media outlets that like to um, megaphone uh, their fears and their feelings uh, ab- ab- about currency movements. I mean, uh, you know, currency movements go up and down in a day uh, when people say, oh, well, you know, we're feeling a little bit uh, less optimistic about uh, America-China uh, trade talks. Now, America-China trade talks are having absolutely no effect on the currency transactions on any given day. You know, but on that day, the currencies will go down because now suddenly there's pessimism about the trade talks. Then the next day, there will be optimism about the trade talks and then the currencies will go up. But it's nonsense because, you know, the trade talks are only going to have a data effect when they are finalized and implemented. So what you're really speaking about is uh, perception. So what you're really speaking about is manipulating the futures markets in order to take over the spot price. Hmm. Is that a conspiracy theory? Well, I mean, uh, it sounds like a conspiracy theory to me when, uh, you know, a pessimism about trade talks affects a, a, a currency value. And the pessimism is expressed by one single currency trader. And the currency trader, in actual fact, doesn't have the ear of the negotiators. He's just read a story, you know. Reuters comes out and says, um, uh, Mr. Lightgeiser, the uh, U.S. trade representative, uh, is feeling pessimistic about uh, China-American trade talks. Now, he's feeling pessimistic about a future event. It's not an event that is happening today. It's not an event that, that determines how many um, widgets have been sold from China to America and how many bridgets have been sold from America to China. It doesn't affect that in any way. It doesn't affect their price in any way whatsoever. Uh, the people who are doing those trades but probably don't, they haven't even heard of Mr. Lightgeiser. Um, so how on earth can Mr. Lightgeiser feeling pessimistic about something and sharing his feelings with the Reuters reporter? How can that affect currency prices and currency movements? It cannot in any way affect currency movements until the Reuters reporter goes back to Reuters and he writes up his Reuters report. He phones up a few currency traders and a few currency traders say, well, you know, I now feel a little bit pessimistic about this. No, in actual fact, what he's doing, what's happening there is um, the fix has been put in. Hmm? Um Currency traders are wanting to move currencies. They don't like seeing currencies sitting still. Uh, no trader uh, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange wants to see the counters doing nothing. As long as it's, it's like accountants, accountants' profits um, in uh, in uh, you know the the phase leading up to the credit crunch in 2008, compared to accountants' profits afterwards, showed absolutely no difference. They made money whether the market was going up and the market was going down. And so the same thing goes for traders on the stock exchanges and so on. Uh, except for the currency traders. They like to, well, no, the currency traders also, they like to see the movement. They like to see the movement. Uh, but it's other people who actually like to see uh, continuing movements or specific movements, such as miners and and banks. So, you know, the currency traders work for the miners and the banks. So this is in where, and it is with the necessary collusion of journalists that the currency markets are able to work. Without the journalists, the currency markets wouldn't be able to say, well, you know, we're feeling rather pessimistic um, about the outcome of, you know, whatever uh, unforeseen future event is likely to happen. You start talking about sentiment. And, uh, you know, um, Western intellectualism is all about getting rid of sentiment uh, and being, uh, you know, data-driven. So anyway, this is why, you know, um, and, the, the, and the, the, the currency traders use the, um, the trading platforms. 90% of all currency traders around the world use either a Reuters or a Bloomberg trading terminal. And they use their messaging system to speak to the traders that they're working with overseas. Collusion is happening. Platinum prices out of South Africa are always sold at the lowest. Platinum prices out of Switzerland are always sold at the highest. There is currency manipulation happening. We are not talking about free and fair trade at all, whatsoever. Probably never have. It's probably been an urban legend. 
Um, sure. You know, I've, I've got a really lovely article about, um, about India that I'm going to read. I'm going to forget, forget all of that other stuff I told you in the beginning of the show that we, we were going to cover. I'm just going to rush today. I'm going to rush and I'm going to read a story about India and the Raj and, and the British. Seeing as I'm Irish, you know, and all of my family's leaving for Ireland now, except for me leaving me here in Africa. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm sorry. I'm not leaving. Um, so I'm going to read this story about Britain and India. There's a story that is commonly told in Britain that the colonization of India, as horrible as it may have been, was not of any major economic benefit to Britain itself. This is the way the British like to speak to themselves. If anything, the administration of India was a cost to Britain. So the fact that the empire was sustained for so long, the story goes, is a gesture of Britain's benevolence, the British Raj. New research by renowned economist Utsa Patnaik, just published by Columbia University Press, deals a crushing blow to this narrative. Drawing on nearly two centuries of detailed data on tax and trade, Patnaik calculated that Britain drained a total of nearly $45 trillion from India during the period 1765 to 1938. It's a staggering sum. For perspective, $45 trillion is 17 times more than the total annual gross domestic product of the United Kingdom today. How did this come about? 17 times more. It happened through the trade system. Prior to the colonial period, Britain bought goods like textiles and rice from Indian producers and paid for them in the normal way, mostly with silver, as they did with any other country. But something changed in 1765, shortly after the the East India Company took control of the subcontinent and established a monopoly over Indian trade. Here's how it worked. The East India Company began collecting taxes in India and then cleverly used a portion of these revenues, about a third of them, to fund the purchase of Indian goods for British use. Think about that. In other words, instead of paying for Indian goods out of their own pocket, the British traders acquired them for free, buying from peasants and weavers using the money that had just been taken from them. It was a scam. It was theft on a grand scale. Yet most of the Indians were unaware of what was going on because the agent who collected the taxes was not the same one who showed up to buy their goods. Had it been the same person, they surely would have smelt a rat. And there you see, hmm? East India Company, a corporation, incorporated the veil of the West, is the corporation. The corporation has many forms. It can be the political party. It can be the corporation itself. It can be uh, the pension fund. It can be the medical aid. It can be the soccer club. Yeah, all of these things. It can be the family trust, the 1%. They also use the corporation uh, to manage uh, their family their, their, their family wealth. They hide it in trusts, which is another form of a corporation, so that you actually can't see what the 1% is doing with their money. They hide their identity behind the corporation, Anglo-American, um, Richemont, or whatever, uh, and uh, they hide the money <clears throat> behind the, the corporation, which is known as the family trust. All of these it's corporations, incorporation, uh, hiding, limited liability to hide the identity and to hide the money. It was a scam, theft on a grand scale. Yet most Indians were unaware of what was going on because, as I say, the agent who collected the taxes was not the same one who showed up to buy their goods. Some of the stolen goods were consumed in Britain. The rest were exported elsewhere. The re-export system allowed Britain to finance a flow of imports from Europe, including strategic materials like iron, tar, and timber, which were essential to Britain's industrialization. Indeed, the Industrial Revolution depended in large part on this systematic theft from India. On top of this, the British were able to sell the stolen goods to other countries for much more than they had bought them in the first place, pocketing not only up to 100% of the original value of the goods, but also the markup. After the British Raj took over in 1858, colonizers added a new special twist to the tax and buy system. As the East India Company's monopoly broke down, Indian producers were allowed to export the goods directly to other countries. But Britain made sure that the payments for those goods nevertheless ended up in London. How did this work? Basically, anyone who wanted to buy goods from India could do so using special council bills, a unique unique paper currency issued only by the British Crown. And the only way to get those bills was to buy them from London with gold or silver. So traders would pay London in gold to get the bills and then use the bills to pay Indian producers. 
When Indians cashed the bills in at the local colonial office, they were paid in rupees out of tax revenues, money that had just been collected from them. So once again, they were not in fact paid at all. They were defrauded. Meanwhile, London ended up with all the gold and silver that should have gone directly to the Indians in exchange for their exports. This corrupt system meant that even while India was running an impressive trade surplus with the rest of the world, a surplus that lasted for three decades in the early 20th century, it showed up as a deficit in the national accounts because the real income from India's exports was appropriated in its entirety by Britain. Some points of this fictional deficit as evidence that India was a liability to Britain. Some point, sorry, some point to this fictional deficit as evidence that India was a liability to Britain. But exactly the opposite is true. Britain intercepted enormous quantities of income that rightly belonged to Indian producers. India was the goose that laid the golden egg. Meanwhile, the so-called deficit meant that India had no option but to borrow from Britain to finance its imports. So the entire Indian population was forced into completely unnecessary debt to their colonial overlords, further cementing British control. Mm, clever guys, huh? clever guys, clever guys. Hey, Britain used the windfall from this fraudulent system to fuel the engines of imperial violence, funding the invasion of China in the 1840s and the suppression of the Indian rebellion in 1857 when they took Muslims, the Muslim leaders of this mutiny, and uh, they uh, tied them over the, the, the mouths of cannons and then blew them to pieces in front of the people. Yeah, that's what Britain did. And this was on top of what the Crown took directly from Indian taxpayers to pay for its wars. As Putnaik points out, the cost of all Britain's wars of conquest outside Indian borders were charged always, wholly or mainly, to Indian revenues. And that's not all. Britain used this flow of tribute from India to finance expansion of capitalism in Europe and regions of Euro European settlement like Canada and Australia and South Africa. So not only the no, South Africa paid for its own way as well. So not only the industrialization of Britain, but also the industrialization of much of the Western world was facilitated by extraction from the colonies. I bet if we go and have a look at South Africa, exactly the same kind of thing was happening here. Patnaik identifies four distinct economic periods in colonial India from, 16, from 1765 to 1938, calculates the extraction of each and then compounds at a modest rate of interest, about 5%, from the middle of each period to the present. Adding all this up, she finds that the total drain amounted to $44.6 trillion. This figure is conservative, she says, and does not include the debts that Britain imposed on India during the Raj. These are eye-watering sums, but due to the true costs of this drain, cannot be calculated. If India had been able to invest its own tax revenues and foreign exchange earnings in development, as Japan did, there's no telling how history might have turned out differently. India could very well have become an economic powerhouse. Centuries of poverty and suffering could have been prevented. Billions of deaths could have been prevented. I'll consider Japan. Japan didn't have these constraints. Japan was able to modernize uh, at, the, at the turn of the century and was able to take on Russia and fight a war with Russia. It became a major powerhouse and was able to take on the United States and Britain in the Second World War. India was in, not in a position to do that because they had the British on board. All of this is a sobering antidote to the nosy, rosy narrative promoted by certain powerful voices in Britain. The conservative historian Niall Ferguson has claimed that Britain helped to develop India. While he was Prime Minister, David Cameron asserted that British rule was a net help to India. Well, that's all we have time for for today. Jazakumullah for joining us. So make dua that whatever trading activity you got up to today is profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.